Welcome to EM Guidewire, brought to you by the emergency medicine residents and faculty at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. EM Cardiology by Dr. Littman. Welcome to this week's Cardiology Core Concepts for Emergency Medicine Physicians, brought to you by the EM Guidewire team from the Carolinas Medical Center Emergency Medicine Group. Today we have a big group of residents, so let's go around the table real quick for introductions. I'm Chrissy Zahner. I'm Russell Tregonis. And I'm Kyle Rotersheimer. And as always, the star of our show, Dr. Littman. Hello. This week's installment is sponsored by... Eyeglasses. Eyeglasses. The only thing that protected your face from the infectious phlegm that the toddler coughed on you from six inches away. Eyeglasses. Now, let's get on with the show. Today we will be hitting one of our big, sexy EM topics, the coding patient. To be more specific, we will be taking a look at the PEA arrest. First, a quick review. 30% of all cardiac arrests are PEA. What's even more important to know is that these arrests are associated with a poor prognosis as compared to our shockable rhythms. Possibly contributing to this is that there are no reliable evidence-based therapies for PEA. Well, when I think about PEA, all I think about is H's and T's, and on any given day, I'm lucky to remember maybe two or three in the moment of a code. At that point, it feels like I'm throwing the kitchen sink as a last-ditch effort. Just as a reminder, can we go through the H's and T's? Hypovolemia, hypoxia, hydrogen ion, or acidosis, hyperkalemia, hypokalemia, hypothermia, and hypoglycemia. Also, toxins, tamponade, tension pneumothorax, thrombosis, coronary or pulmonary, trauma. I've already forgotten half of them. Surely there has to be a better way to manage this patient. I think I've already hit on the major problem with the HS and Ts, that there are so many of them that it's almost impossible to record them in the acute setting. But more importantly, even if such a list is created, how does it help sort out the most likely causes and, more importantly, the most effective treatments? The ACLS certainly does not give us any guidance towards treatment choices. And lastly, you have to be lucky to die in an English-speaking country where this condition starts with the letters H and T. Of course, I'm just kidding. So is there a better way? I think so. We need to put some rationale into how to evaluate and treat PEA. And one of the ways to really start off is with looking at the basic EKG. And you cannot diagnose PEA without having at least a rhythm strip. You look at the rhythm strip and try to find out if the case complexes are narrow or wide, and then you put PEAs into two categories. All right, so first step, QRS narrow or wide. Okay, even I can pull that off. Well, let's say we have a narrow complex. Now what? So if the case complex is narrow, you should think this is probably not the heart muscle. It's a mechanical problem. And what are the most common mechanical problems that cause PEA? It's cardiac tamponade tension pneumothorax, or massive PE. Basically, it's right ventricular inflow or outflow obstruction. So if it's narrow, you're saying it's likely not the muscle. What about if it's wide? If the crest complexes are wide, there's probably something wrong with the heart muscle itself. It's true PEA. And there are several, but not too many conditions that will cause the crest complexes to become wide during PEA. It's mostly a metabolic abnormality, either severe hyperkalemia with or without metabolic acidosis or severe sodium channel blocker toxicity. That seems to make a lot of sense when you're thinking about the QRS being wide caused by a metabolic problem rather than a muscle problem. What about if there's a STEMI? 
that's a very good point. Acute MI2 can present with or result in PEA. It's either because of myocardial rupture or pump failure. But I think here too, categorizing into a narrow complex PE or wide complex PEA helps. Because if it's myocardial rupture, the PEA is due to cardiac tamponade, so the curious complexes will remain narrow. If it's pump failure, it's usually agonal rhythm that tends to widen the curious complex. So let's recap. If the QRS is narrow, then we're going to be thinking it's not a metabolic problem. If it's wide, then we're going to be concerned about a metabolic problem. I know there's, you know, other things that you can use for your clinical exam, not just, you know, your stethoscope. What about an ultrasound? Is that something that we can use in this scenario? Absolutely. And what is becoming very popular is incredibly important in PA is the bedside ultrasound. In narrow complex PA, which is usually due to a mechanical problem, the left ventricle is usually actually hyperdynamic because it was a right ventricle inflow or outflow problem. Some call it pseudo-PA because the left ventricle is pumping really fast and hard. If the case complexes are wide, especially if they are wide due to metabolic problem or through pump failure, then the left ventricle will be profoundly hypokinetic or even akinetic. We call it true PA. Okay, so first we go with our wide or narrow QRS complex. After that, the other tool we can use is ultrasound. If we see a hyperdynamic left ventricle, then the left ventricle is working well, and it's more a obstructing problem, something preventing it from getting there. If we see a hypokinetic left ventricle or a dilated left ventricle, we're looking at a true metabolic problem. Anything else that we can see on ultrasound? Absolutely. If it's a mechanical problem, we can usually identify what is the cause. If it's cardiac tamponade, we see large pericardial fusion, extension pneumothorax, sometimes we actually see the air in the thoracic cavity. If it's PE, we usually see dilated right ventricle, hypokinetic right ventricle. So the ultrasound can provide us with valuable additional information in addition to showing that the left ventricle is small and hyperdynamic. I know Dr. Tyel would love to hear that. Now that we have our approach into identifying the problem, how are we managing these differently? Well, of course, we always start with wide open fluids with every PE arrest, and in arrest caused by a mechanical problem is even more important than otherwise. And then we should focus on relieving the obstruction. So it's basically needles or lytics. For cardiac tamponade, we perform pericardial synthesis, tension pneumothorax, needle decompression, and for massive PE resulting in PEA, we usually give thrombolytics. Is this where I can dump epi, calcium, and bicarb into the patient? I don't think so. <laughs> don't forget the left ventricle is tiny, empty, and hyperdynamic, and the right ventricle is usually compressed. So by giving epinephrine or other agents that increase heart rate and contractile force, you can actually further impair left ventricle filling. So those would be really bad ideas. Okay, so we have our narrow complex where we're going to give fluids or relieve any obstruction, whether it's popping the lung if they had a pneumothorax or trying to give lytics to break up any clot. We also don't want to give epi and calcium and bicarbonate to these patients because their left ventricle is already working hard and that's just going to worsen any further hemodynamics. With that in mind, are there any other medications that we could try and add on? I love phenylephrine. <laughs> phenylephrine is pure alpha-adrenergic agonist that increases the blood pressure and has a very profound indirect vagomimetic effect. So it actually slows down the heart rate and thereby can improve left ventricle filling. And left ventricle filling is the problem with mechanical obstruction. So phenylephrine slows down the heart rate, increases the blood pressure, increases left ventricle filling, 
it should do all the good stuff. Okay, so phenylephrine can increase our blood pressure, slow down the heart rate, and may improve left ventricular filling. It's not something that's typically on my card that I carry around in my pocket. How are we dosing this? So that's very important. You have to give enough. Don't forget the patient is dead. There's no circulation. So you can give 200 to 500 micrograms IV push over 10 to 30 seconds. The beauty is that it's effective within a minute and it's not very short acting. So duration of action is actually 20 minutes. You have now time to do the needles analytics. All right, narrow complex QRS. We've got a mechanical problem. We're worried about tamponade, tension pneumothorax, maybe mechanical hyperinflation or a pulmonary embolism. We can treat all those things, whether it's a needle to drain a pericardial effusion or to open up a pneumothorax or give lytics if we have a pulmonary embolism. We'll flood these patients with fluids, try and get up their preload, and if we need to use something else to help, we can use bigger doses of phenylephrine to try and increase our preload and try and slow down our heart rate. What about our wide QRS complexes, where we're looking at more of a metabolic problem? Here, too, you start with wide-open fluids, but here you immediately proceed with high-quality CPR and give epinephrine as appropriate. The next step is try to figure out what is the underlying cause. Is it hyperkalemia or sodium channel blocker toxicity? The clinical scenario is usually totally different. You think of hyperkalemia in patients with renal failure, sepsis, shock, or in the ICU setting. And you think of sodium shell blocker toxicity if the patient took something and found down. If you think it's hyperkalemia, you push IV calcium. If you think it's probably sodium shell blocker toxicity, you give bicarboluses. Okay, so for our wide QRS where we're thinking more metabolic, this is where our calcium chloride and sodium bicarbonate can be really helpful in a clinical scenario. If we're thinking hyperkalemia, acidosis, calcium chloride, sodium channel blocker toxicity in the setting of ingestion, sodium bicarbonate. Also, always wide-open fluids and high-quality CPR, and here is where epinephrine can be helpful. This seems too simple, but we've only covered some of the H&Ts here. Aren't the rest still important? What else do I need to know? I think we have covered most everything. When you look at the HSNTs, there are several conditions which just got in there because I think their name just starts with the letter H. Time out. I can make my list shorter? Yes, absolutely. Hypokalemia. It starts with an H, but hypokalemia, I don't think in the history of mankind, has ever caused PA. It's just in there. Hypoglycemia has been taken out. Trauma has been already taken out. So these conditions don't cause PA, or they are so vague that it's not necessary to list them. That's true, but what about hypoxia? Patients with PA are frequently hypoxemic, but hypoxemia is usually the result rather than the cause of the PA. Hypoxemia can cause bradycardia and asystole, but rarely causes PE as a primary manifestation. In addition, everybody will be on oxygen anyway. Do I even dare ask about hypothermia? <laughs> yes, you should. And hypothermia was left out, and hypothermia can cause PE, but the clinical scenario is so specific that it's really not even a question in the real-life setting. The patient was found outside and is cold. And what about hypovolemia? Hypovolemia usually causes shock rather than PA. It can cause PA if you have aortic rupture, but those patients don't survive anyway. In addition, everything starts with wide open fluids anyway, so you don't really need to address that specifically. What about the T's? Toxins? Out of all toxins, really only sodium channel blocker toxicity presents primarily with PA. Calcium channel blocker, beta blocker toxicity usually causes bradycardia or AV block, but not PEA. And Sodium shell blocker toxicity has already been covered as a wide complex PA. It seems so obvious to direct treatment in this way. What are the pitfalls of this method? So there are some problems with this algorithm or this 
new approach to PA. And the most important one is that sometimes mechanical problems are associated with Weitkirch's complexes. An example is a patient may have pre-existing bundle branch block or WPW and still have a mechanical problem. In addition, massive PE can cause new right bundle branch block and then it will be a mechanical problem with Weitkirch's complexes. In acute MI, left bundle branch block and micro rupture may coexist. And finally, following prolonged resuscitation, all mechanical causes may eventually result in wide crest agonal rhythms. All right, so some of our presentations that normally fall under narrow complex can actually present with wide complex, and that can throw off your approach. But for the most part, separating by narrow and wide is going to get us to most of our answers. Especially if you add the bedside ultrasound to it. The bedside ultrasound can really confirm your clinical suspicion. Is this a mechanical problem, pseudo-PE with hyperdynamic left ventricle, or true PA due to LV dysfunction? This seems really simple. Why aren't we using this everywhere? Shouldn't it be published somewhere? Actually, it has been. A few years ago, uh, I and uh, one of the critical care physicians and an emergency medicine resident at that time, Devin Bostin, wrote it up, and it's been published in the journal Medical Principle and Practice in 2014. And Devin was a very important part of it because he really pushed me to write up this simplified and structured teaching tool. You heard it here, guys. Look it up. A simplified and structured teaching tool for the evaluation and management of pulseless electrical activity, written by our own Dr. Lippman, Dr. Bustin, and Dr. Haley. Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Lippman, for walking us through the PEA algorithm. I think we should probably recap, though. We went over a lot today. Using the presenting EKG from simple telemetry recording can quickly direct evaluation of PEA towards the most likely etiology and most effective treatment. Okay, so we've identified that the QRS is narrow and it's probably pseudo-PEA due to a mechanical cause like pneumothorax, tamponade, or a massive pulmonary embolism. To treat this, we can use wide open fluids. We can also confirm this cause with a bedside ultrasound. If we see something that might be causing a massive obstruction like a big RV, then we can look at lytics. If we see evidence of a pneumothorax, we can use a needle decompression. Be careful in this scenario because CPR and meds like epi, calcium, and bicarb likely will not help your patient. And don't forget to consider phenylephrine. If the QRS is wide, it's probably a metabolic cause such as sodium toxicity or severe hyperkalemia or even an agonal rhythm with left ventricular failure. This is the scenario when you're going to want wide open fluids and high quality CPR. Here is where you consider early use of IV epinephrine calcium, and sodium bicarbonate. Thanks again for your insight, Dr. Lippman. As always, we appreciate you simplifying an approach to a very challenging patient. When the next PEA comes in, I'm glad that I won't have to struggle through my H's and T's anymore. From the J. Lee Garvey Innovation Studios here in Charlotte, North Carolina at Carolina's Medical Center, this is EM Guidewire. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go! Be awesome today! CMC out. Gravity. 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 <laughs> Gravity. <laughs>